This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're available online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Onelens Insi, Tracy Boomgaard, as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. At least 15 Liberians protesting against George Weah's presidency arrested during clashes with the police in Monrovia. Kenya's uh, Dusted D2 Hotel reopening more than seven months after 21 people were killed there by gunmen. In economics, Zimbabwe to repeal its uh, indigenous... Indigenization and economic empowerment legislation dealing with uh, ownership of foreign controlled companies. And lastly, in sport, IAAF lords the Swiss court ruling that blocks South African caster Semenya from defending her world 800 meter title in Doha. Hello, Anele, how are you? Good afternoon, sir. How are you? I am well, thank you. Now, Anele, I know that uh, you don't really cook much at home. No. Um, but what is the worst thing that has ever happened to you whilst you were cooking? I can't think of it right now. Probably a lot of things that I've done that are just out of order. So cooking is concerned. <laughs> and I'm okay with it. So last night, I fell asleep with <gasps> meat in the oven. And I woke up a couple of hours later and I am... That's not even the worst thing. You could have... I could have pl- di- put your place in, on fire. I, I know, right? I was, look, was thinking about that and I was just like, geez, um, I could have actually killed myself. So I am very lucky to be here today. <laughs> you are very lucky to be, well, to have me here with you. <laughs> the time is 17.02 Central African time. Let's cross on over to the news desk. Here is on Linsensi. Thank you, Samora. Mozambique leader and the Renamo opposition have signed a peace accord to end years of hostilities that followed a 15-year civil war. Thousands of fighters will now disarm just weeks before a visit by Pope Francis in a national election set for October. President Philippe Nyusi and Renamo leader Osofu Momade shook hands and embraced after the signing. Around a million people died in the conflict. The Pope's visit next month will aim to promote reconciliation in the southern African country. Opposition leaders say they had resolved major sticking point to in talks with Sudan's military rulers, bringing them closer to a deal on forming a new transitional government. This is after the ousting of longtime leader Omar al-Bashir. The report said progress came three days after talks were thrown into question following the killing of six people at a rally as they protested over bread and fuel shortages. Sudan has been gripped by months of political turmoil and street protests that climaxed in the army overthrowing Bashir in April. Despite signing a deal in July which secured a three-year transition period and a joint sovereign council with a rotating leadership, talks over the wording of a constitutional declaration on the changes have stumbled. 
Nigerian pastor Timothy Omodosa remains a prohibited person in South Africa. This after elite police, the Hawks and officials from the Home Affairs Department dismissed his application to have his prohibited status lifted. Earlier, Judge Ermas Guman dismissed Omodosa's defense lawyer Peter Doberman's application to compel the state to provide more particulars on the charge sheet. Our reporter Jade Lee. There was high drama straight after Judge Irma Skuman gave her judgment. We went straight into the walks, walking into the courtroom with the official from the Department of Home Affairs issuing Timothy Omotosu with documents. And we saw some of the congregants also that were seated in the public gallery telling Omotosu, Daddy, don't sign these papers. Daddy, wait for your legal representative who is defense lawyer Peter Doberman. Don't sign. And then we saw Timothy Omotosu complying in the event signing those papers. The Netherlands is introducing restrictions on the public wearing of face covering clothing including Islamic veils. The burqa and niqab as well as crash helmets and ski masks are being outlawed in public buildings and on public transport though not on the street. Those breaking the law are warned they could be fined but the new rules face significant opposition. BBC's Anna Holligan. The ban, which was seen as symbolic from the start, appears to be unravelling already, with police, hospitals and public transport staff refusing to enforce the new rules after officers said they wouldn't treat any violation on trains, buses or trams as a high-priority offence. Only a few hundred women in the Netherlands actually wear the full face veil. The law was agreed at a time of political tensions partly linked to the refugee crisis. Channel Africa News, I am Onilins Inzi. At least 15 Liberians protesting against George Weah's presidency were arrested during clashes with the police in the capital, Monrovia. Police allegedly fired tear gas to stop the demonstrators from approaching the parliament building while protesters threw stones and bottles at officers. The protests follow uh, on from a similar march in June, which saw hundreds of thousands take to the streets of the capital against corruption and economic mismanagement and a former footballer turned president. Earlier, Channel Africa's Kumbelo Munzelele spoke to the Liberian journalist Joel Cholo-Brooks, and he says although an uneasy calm has returned, there are fears violence may erupt once again. Liberians are taken to the streets in continuation of the protest that was planned in June, and they continue again today. Yesterday, there was a clash between the, the protester and the police. So today, they are also planning to, to go in the street again today. How many people have been arrested? Because we understand several people have been arrested during the clashes yesterday. Yesterday, clashes, they have arrested 15 persons. 15 protested, yeah. The protests follow on from a similar March uh, protest. A formal reform petition was presented to President George Ware. Has there been any response from uh, President Ware with regards to the demands of uh, Liberians? That's the situation right now. The President has not responded to the protester demand uh, up, to, up to presence. They have not answered to the demand of the protester. So the protesters are saying you know, we have a by-election here. And the by-election they are talking about is that after the by-election, 
after the by election they they want to have a massive massive uh, protest uh, so what they are doing right now yesterday like i said uh, 15 guys were arrested uh, during the protest picked them up yesterday by police and that the police spokesperson is saying that uh, the justice minister has not given them the go ahead to protest so the police have the right to have to have them arrested. Now, just finally, do you think these protests are likely to lead to either the implementation of the reforms that protesters are calling for or possibly concerted public pressure for President Ware to resign? The protesters are very determined. They are very determined. They want our president. We are to answer to their demand. If not, they will continue with their protest. But what I saw yesterday, it was so it was so terrible. I mean, the police with their baton, with their guns. They have people chasing people in the street. So uh, I don't know whether, uh, like today, uh, like I said, today the street, the streets are very calm right now as we speak. Nothing much is happening right now. And that was Joel Cholo Brooks, Liberian journalist on the line from the capital Monrovia, talking to Kumbero Munzelele. The situation remains tense and unpredictable in El Obeid town, North uh, Korodofan region, west of Sudan's capital Khartoum, where at least six people, including four secondary school students, were killed after security forces opened fire to disperse hundreds of demonstrators. James Shimanyula reports. The six students that were killed as well as hundreds of others that sustained serious injuries, staged a demonstration in northern Korodofan's El Obeid town, west of Sudan's capital Khartoum, protesting against poor living conditions and acute shortage of food commodities. The killing of the students has forced Sudan's ruling military authorities to order the closure of all schools in the country. Residents of El Obeid town have been making varying comments on the killing. Ahmed Sabri, a father of two, confirmed that indeed schools have been closed not only in El Obeid but throughout the country. Now the school is closed up and it was not, it was not uh, expected that the school will close up in this way. So automatically they are at home now. Zaina Ibrahim, a mother of five, attests to the fact that security officials were responsible for the killing of the students in El Obeid town. What happened yesterday or before yesterday, military police, they are shooting students, killing them. As a mother, I cannot leave my child to go to school and there maybe they will be shooting around. Mohamed Lebat, African Union's representative in Sudan, speaking in Arabic on the killing of the students had this to say. We condemn the killing. We are calling on the military council to look for the killers of the students and prefer criminal charges against these killers. The killers must answer the charges before a court of law. Alluding to the power-sharing agreement signed by Sudan's opposition groups and the military council, Lebat said, We in the African Union urge the military council to speed up the process of implementing the power-sharing agreement. Sudan is in urgent need of a stable government. That was African Union representative in Sudan, Mohamed Lebat. Meanwhile, repeated efforts to speak to the head of Sudan's ruling military council, General Abdel Fattah Burhan, or his spokesman, to get their reaction to the killing of the students 
bore no fruit. Phone calls to them kept ringing. However, a statement released to the local media by the country's official news agency in short, Suna, quoted General Burhan saying he regretted the killing of the students. The statement attributed to General Burhan went on to say, and I quote, What happened in El Obeid is unfortunate and sad. The killing of peaceful citizens is unacceptable. The killing is a punishable crime, a crime that requires immediate and deterrent accountability. The statement further quoted General Burhan deviating from the killing and alluding to the power-sharing agreement. Here is what he said. The killing of civilians must accelerate the ongoing efforts to reach an agreement over the formation of a transitional authority. Delaying the transition will lead to more losses and economic deterioration. We have directed the negotiating delegation to overcome minor issues and reach a comprehensive agreement for the transition. General Burhan pointed out that spending a long time in the discussion of minor issues hampered the agreement. Burhan's remarks come at a time when the people of Sudan are eagerly waiting for the formation of the power-sharing government which Burhan referred to earlier. Surprisingly, General Burhan, according to official news agency Suna, has made it clear that, and I quote, our participation in the government is a partnership, not a power-sharing deal. General Burhan also commented on the sticking point of political immunity of members of military council and said it was not an issue of concern for them. We did not demand immunity, General Burhan said and concluded. We do not want immunity, and it was just a proposal by a joint technical committee. End of quote by head of Sudan's ruling military council, General Fatah Burhan. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netle to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. An open day to promote the English language and evaluate its impact in the Democratic Republic of Congo is underway at the University of Kinshasa. The university has organized the occasion as English has begun to widely be used in the DRC and has become a key to gain access to different sectors in that country. Jean-Nolba reports from Kinshasa. 
English is now showing its importance here in the Democratic Republic of Congo and indeed most of people are interested in learning this language they have been neglecting in the past. One can hope to get hired and given a good position here if English is among his skills. That's indeed the reason why most of people graduating in other fields are interested in going for this language as it's now being required in different sectors of work in this country. This lecture of the University of Kinshasa, who's also one of the people promoting English in the Democratic Republic of Congo, is proud of that. Dr. Raymond Sangabau emphasizes the importance of English in the world and its impact here in the DRC as it has become a key access to suitable jobs in different sectors. English is key in the world. English is key in DRC. You've heard this morning, a presenter, it's one of the requirements to find a very good job in DRC. Go to MONUSCO, go to USID, go to UNFPA, go to good paid job. There are jobs and jobs. There are jobs when you get it, you are not well paid. But if you need a job where you can, go, you can be well paid, I think the English language command is a requirement. That's why I say that it's a requirement in DRC. Most of people part of this open day believe in the importance of English being in business or in any other sector, especially as the world is moving ahead and this language is used globally. This businessman, who is also a board member in different companies here in the Democratic Republic of Congo, has described English as a must-learn language since it's one of the dominating language in the world. Nestor Ankiba told Channel Africa, international business is chiefly in English and this is an official language in both sea and air. Transport and the right business must have have a good English command. Business is going global. It's not today. It's been going global. And English is taken as being uh, one of the dominating language in the world. International business is chiefly in English. English is the official language in uh, sea and air transport. Many information and resources on computer are in English. And English is mostly used in science, in technology, and research. Many academic journals are in English. So this translates and the importance of English as far as business is concerned and also as far as the work environment is concerned. Today I think that uh, English is more than the necessary. English is a must to survive in the global competitive environment and especially in the work environment. The open day underway at the University of Kinshasa, well known as Unikin here in the Democratic Republic of Congo's capital city, is attracting a significant number of people interested in knowing more about learning English. And that's indeed one of the reasons why this event has been organized. This Unikin lecturer who is also one of the English language promoters in the country tells about it. Once more, Dr. Raymond Sangabau. You can come to the English department without having a very good master of the English language and you will learn it in course of the way. That's one. And uh, second, it was also to promote our new orientations. We have English for management, English for hostelry, we have English now for diplomacy, all those new orientations, that was for promotion. And last, it was also to, to, 
to ask our students to keep on on their way of studies. In the previous years, most of people here in the Democratic Republic of Congo have been putting more importance in mastering French as it's this country's official language. They didn't want to hear about English as they said it wouldn't take them anywhere. But nowadays, most of Congolese have understood the importance of English and its impact worldwide. They are now looking at it as the language of the future and that's why such an event is attracting a significant number of people. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Today marks one year since the Democratic Republic of the Congo confirmed cases of Ebola and the beginning of the country's 10th outbreak of the disease. The one-year mark comes amid the confirmation of a second case of the virus in the city of Goma this week, raising fears that the disease could spread beyond the country's borders. More than 1,800 people have died since an outbreak was declared and prompting the World Health Organization to declare a public health emergency of international concern last month. More from the WHO's Dr. Margaret Harris. This one is completely different from the others. For one reason, it's in a place that it's never been before in the Democratic Republic of Congo on the eastern side. And even though you might think, yes, but they've had nine others in different places, this is a culture and a community and a place where there's been ongoing conflict for several decades. So it's an entirely different context. Part of that context is people are not trusting of outsiders and they're not trusting of authorities. So when you get a large group of people from outside who come and tell them about this new disease and all the things that need to happen, their response actually is often not to trust and to feel or to believe that the disease was actually brought by us, not that we're there to help. So it's been a much more difficult response. And the key we found is that we must work with community wherever the virus is and it's something that you just have to start again over and over again because every community is different every context is slightly different now the world health organization along with partners has been working alongside the government combating the disease walk us through the journey that you've traveled this past year in as far as your response is concerned well certainly one of the important parts of the journey is developing expertise in the local area So the people who are now really doing most of the work in the response are very much local people. We, the partners, are there, where WHO is there, UNICEF, World Bank, all the different partners are here. But the main, the bulk of the response, the bulk of the work, and the important thing is that that work will have to continue after Ebola is finished. The bulk of that is now being done by local people. We're hearing how relentless and devastating the disease is, passing from mother to child, husband to wife, patient to caregiver, from the dead body of a victim to the mourning relative. To what extent has it had local businesses or prevented children from going to school or even hampered vital and routine health services? So at the moment, those sort of things are still continuing as normal and children still go to school and business continues. But of course, people are very frightened and are very nervous. And our message very much from the World Health Organization is that please, the rest of the world, do not shut down. Do not stop trading. Those things should be allowed to continue as normal. A year later, doctor, how would you describe the challenges that are stopping further transmission? 
Well, the biggest challenge is really that people move tremendously in this area. So they go from, I cover enormous distances. We just had a second case in Goma, and that gentleman has now transmitted the virus to a member of his family. And he came all the way from Ituri province, which is a very long distance north. He had been working as a miner there and had come slowly down to Goma. And he's not an isolated instance. That very often you've got people who move long distances and come to other places and start transmission of the virus there. The other problem is people don't want to be identified as having the virus. So they hide and they go somewhere else to a new community and we don't find out about them until they've sadly either died or they're on their very last legs and they come to the Ebola treatment centre when it's too late to save them. How important has it become then at this stage of the outbreak for more partners to step in and join the response? Well, yes, we definitely want a much stronger support from the international community. Some of that's funding, but a lot of that's expertise, more work on the science. We need to develop more treatment. There are a number of different candidate vaccines that are being considered. We need all that sort of work to be done to strengthen what we can do to help people here. With the disease showing no signs of abating, how do you plan to further scale up response and preparedness measures? Well, we would intend to have what we call mobile teams that are in the hotspots as close as possible to communities. So that, of course, is going to take more people and more expertise. Now, ideally, that expertise comes from local communities, comes from local people. They have to be trained. They have to be supported. So we need international expertise as well. That was Dr. Margaret Harris of the World Health Organization talking to Elizabeth Ledicha. Busamed Gateway Private Hospital, situated in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa, partners with Medtronic, a global leader in medical technology, to offer an enhanced patient outcomes for neuro and spinal surgical therapies. Channel Africa's Lebukhang Mabanges attended the launch of the new O-Arm and filed the following report. Patients with neuro or spinal conditions in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa now have access to world-class surgical procedures at Busamet Gateway Private Hospital following the introduction of high-end theatre technology from Medtronic allowing unmatched surgical precision and improved patient outcomes. Comprising the Medtronic O-Arm 2, a surgical imaging system, and Stealth Station S8, a surgical navigation system, the equipment provides surgeons with real-time data and 3D images that dramatically enhance accuracy and outcomes of neuro and spinal surgeries. Dr. Dilizam G, Chief Executive Officer at Busamet Hospital, explains how their partnership with Medtronics came about. It's mainly through the doctors that work on the OAM at our hospital. They introduced us to the technology and then we looked at the technology, its benefits for patients and how it makes the surgery easier and then we approached the manufacturer and the distributor, which is Medtronic. And we discussed then the terms of the funding with Medtronic and we arrived at a mutually beneficial arrangement. Busamet Hospital is the third hospital in South Africa to bring about this high-end theater technology, which is the new O-Arm. Dr. Mji expresses how this makes him feel. 
Well, as you heard, the patients were talking today. We feel proud that you have brought something about that patients can benefit from quick recovery, less of side effects like less radiation. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it makes you feel good. Dr. Vita Stallenberg, a neurosurgeon at Busamet Hospital, expresses how he felt when he used the O-arm for the first time and how the new O-arm has changed the effectiveness of procedures and recovery time for patients. Excited uh, and, uh, and, and, and yet uh, also a little bit nervous because you need to trust being a, a spinal surgeon and you, you need to see the anatomy where you, where you operate from a place where you need to trust an image to guide you to put screws in. Uh, makes it uh, nerve-wracking, but, but also at the same time exciting. It means safer for most of the patients. Um, I think in the long run is that if the technology is available, any spinal surgeon in KZN can use this facility to the best benefit of his patient. It doesn't need to be only for patients that are stay or, or staying or, or patients around this area. If a patient is in the government sector and a specialist is there and he arranged with Busamet or with me, he's very welcome to come and use this, this special machine for the safety or complex cases. In closing, patient Alia Basa and her mother Nasira Basa shared their story and experience with the new O-arm. My name is Nasira Basa. This is my lovely little daughter, Alia. When we had our consultation with Dr. Prabhu, he gave us the option of Gateway Hospital, which we jumped at. He added that you had new technology that could assist him better in his surgery. So that was a definite yes for me. Before the operation, I I used to work bandy and um, I used to complain of a lot of back pains and my, I couldn't breathe properly. My um, left lung was compressed. So now after the operation, I'm walking straight. My, my back isn't that sore anymore and I can breathe properly. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Lebohang Mabange. 17.30 Central African Time. Let's cross on over to the news desk. Here's Onelins Insi with your headlines. Mozambican President Philippe Nyusi and Renamo opposition leader Osufomo Made have signed a landmark agreement aimed at formally ending decades of hostilities. Somalia President gives up his United States citizenship and opposition leaders say they have resolved major sticking points in talks with Sudan's military rulers. Channel Africa News, I am Onilin Sinsi. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Hi, Nelson Hodesasa Mandela. And I solemnly and sincerely promise 
that will always promote all that will advance the Republic and oppose all that may harm it. And maintain the Constitution and all other law of the Republic. I, Matamera Siro Ramaphosa, swear that I will be faithful to the Republic of South Africa. So help me God. Africa. South Africa is this week recognizing Rheumatic Fever Week. The South African Health Ministry declared the first week of August Rheumatic Fever Week over 12, uh, over 25 years ago, rather, bringing what some may say is long overdue recognition to this preventable condition that uh, disproportionately impacts women and children in lower and middle income countries, including South Africa. Advocacy groups are using the opportunity to call for increased action to prevent the disease. And uh, here's more from Joshua Fortune, Health Promotions Officer at the Heart and Stroke Foundation, South Africa. Lymphatic fever is acute infection, usually as a result of a bacterium called the group A streptococcus. So basically it's basically when a person develops a sore throat for no other symptoms, other cold-like symptoms, which is whether it be flu, cold, and stuff like that. So usually they develop this sore throat. And after two to three weeks after that, they will present again with high fever, usually a fever more than 38 degrees Celsius. It's quite relevant and it's quite prevalent because lymphatic fever can cause lymphatic heart disease. Bacterium actually goes to the heart. And in South Africa, currently, there's about 42,600 cases of lymphatic heart disease, which was reported in 2003, which is basically a 50% increase since the 1990s. Unfortunately, the actually studies have shown that women and children are more likely to be sick than that of males. Talk to us about some of the symptoms that patients typically experience. So the symptoms usually is a sore throat, and then two to three weeks after that, they will have a high fever. Usually, this fever will then be accompanied by the shortness of breath. Possibility there might be some skin rash as well developing throughout the body. There's a possibility they might feel fatigue, weak, not really feeling really feeling exhausted. There's a possibility for being feeling a bit nauseated, even vomiting as well. I know you touched a bit on the issue, but I'd like you to please elaborate on how rheumatic fever progresses to heart disease. Usually, if the rheumatic fever gets left untreated, this bacterium can actually then affect the heart. So basically it's an autoimmune response. So the body's auto response to this actual bacterium is usually due to body will cause inflammation. The fever really goes to the heart, really causes a inflammation in the heart and usually it affects the heart valves in the heart. The purpose for heart valves is basically just to, because like we know, heart is a pump, so the blood actually circulates the body in one motion. So the valves really prevent the blood of actually stagnating or really backing up in the system but allows blood just to continually moving forward in one direction. So what happens is if there is inflammation and damaging of the valves in the heart, the valves might be affected which can lead to the heart no longer being able to really pump the blood throughout the body effectively which can actually lead to the person suffering heart disease, particularly heart failure. So heart failure is when there's actually the heart muscle no longer can actively pump due to the damage all the actual heart valves, which later can actually cause blood to stagnate, meaning clots do develop. And if this clots do develop, it gives a person's chance of really suffering a heart attack, 
even a possible stroke if the clots really move to the actual brain. And if really left untreated, really can cause the death of a person. And rheumatic fever, can it be treated or even cured? I think prevention is very important to emphasize. Should somebody really suffer so throat, especially a child or a toddler, if no real other symptoms, it's very important for the parent or caregiver or whoever takes care of the child to really get the person to the health facility. I mean, it's easy enough if a doctor maybe discovers the child actually have a strep throat, maybe just giving them antibiotic, which is the most cost-effective way of really treating or preventing lymphatic fever, which can result in lymphatic heart disease. So prevention is really better than really then that deals with the late effects of lymphatic heart disease. So usually um, antibiotic is where the doctor might prescribe Maybe such as penicillin is really effective, really to treat it or prevent lymphatic fever to develop, which can lead to lymphatic heart disease. However, should the person suffer lymphatic heart disease, it's really a chronic condition that the person might suffer from, which can then lead to the person maybe being on lifetime medication for the condition, and which also puts the person much more at a higher risk of reoccurrence of lymphatic heart disease. So important for the person then to monitor for any other signs or symptoms such as a sore throat or any other flu-like symptoms, really go to the doctor and really to prevent the reoccurrence because the more the person gets this infection, especially in the heart itself as well, the weaker the heart actually becomes. And the person might then suffer from long-term medication. Do you think that rheumatic fever features enough on the global health agenda? Yes, because of the years of advocacy and as well as the campaigning, both from the South African as well as the global lymphatic heart disease community, the World Health Organization actually adapted a global resolution on um, lymphatic fever and lymphatic heart disease in May of last year. The resolution is really targeted specifically really of emphasizing the availability of primary health care to especially our less impoverished communities and making health, primary health care accessible as well as reliable as well and also training these health care workers as well as doctors in primary health care facilities really to recognize you know, the signs and symptoms of step and really treated by giving the affected individuals antibiotics also making sure that the medication actually is available for these people also ensuring that there is following up in the communities also public awareness in our communities as well of lymphatic heart disease really the idea is really prevention and I think very important we have to stress is good hygiene that was Joshua Fortune health promotions officer at the Heart and Stroke Foundation South Africa talking to Elizabeth Ledicha in Kenya the Dusted D2 Hotel in Nairobi is reopening today more than seven months after 21 people were killed there by gunmen. The hotel lost six of its staff in the wake of the January attack blamed on Al-Shabaab militants. It has tightened security with armed police now guarding the hotel. The reopening comes as the government introduces sweeping changes in the security sector, including plans to arm security guards. The BBC's Emmanuel Igunza reports. It's a uh, lot of gunshots now. Run down! Run while you're no! January 15, 2019, heavily armed gunmen storm a luxury hotel and office complex in Kenya's capital, Nairobi, throwing bombs at cars and shooting indiscriminately. Let's move you a little further. Are we safe here? Yes, we're very safe here. Hundreds of people who work at the office block scramble for safety. Others are trapped inside their offices and the Dusit D2 hotel as security forces begin an operation to rescue civilians. But by the time the siege is ending 16 hours later, 21 people have been killed and many more injured. 
Kenya's President Uru Kenyatta announced the killing of five gunmen and vowed to bring to justice all those who carried out the attack. But I must also state that we are also a nation that never forgets those who hurt our children. We have dealt with the threat decisively and shown our enemies and the world that we as a country are ready to deal with any threat to our nation. But months later, the sounds here are very different. There's been a lot of celebration ahead of the reopening of the hotel. The flag of the hotel has been taken around six countries uh, to commemorate the six people who died. The hotel itself looks new. All the visible signs of bullet holes that once dotted the walls have been covered. An additional security barrier has been erected at the main gate. The hotel's general manager, Michael Metaxis, says they are ready for business. The family spirit is grown even stronger than ever before. And this is why everybody is so excited when we're going to reopen the hotel. To me, Kenyans are resilient. We have overcome and we will not allow anybody to interfere with what we believe and what we are as a country and what we are to offer to our guests. But for some families of the victims, life has completely changed. Especially for my daughter, um, who really understands. Diana Otieno's husband, James Oduor, fondly called Odukobra by many of his friends, died that day. An ardent football fan, he worked in an electronic shop at the complex and tweeted about hearing gunshot sounds and explosions as the gunmen stormed the hotel. She tells me the family has struggled to come to terms with his death. His absence has been the most difficult. I knew that he's uh, uh, leaving for work and coming in the evening, then one day he doesn't come back. It's been just difficult all around, uh, mentally, physically, it's just been hard. You find uh, kids, are, my children asking me where's daddy, is daddy coming back? I don't know. <laughs> I can't even explain. I kept thinking that they're kids and they'll forget. We cry together, we say we miss him and we move on. Like other families, Diana wants the government to do much more to improve the security in the country and prevent such attacks from happening again. They have formed a lobby group to push the state to address the security gaps. On the outskirts of the city, guards from a private security firm are graduating after two weeks of intense training. In the past, private security guards were not allowed to be armed. Now the government wants that to change and for these guards to work alongside police officers. Lucas Ndolo is the chief operating officer of a leading private security firm in the country. We have very many policemen who guard VIPs. We have policemen who guard banks. Just the very fact that you can have a private security doing this means that we'll be able to remove these uh, police officers from these duties and allow them to secure you and I, to make sure that you and I you know, are able to go about our businesses and our lives as securely as possible. The government hopes that the increase of budgetary allocation for the security sector and these latest changes will lead to a much better ratio of policemen for every civilian. But the arming of guards has not satisfied everyone with some saying that arming security guards is a greater security risk given that many are not properly trained to handle weapons. Lucas Ndolo disagrees. So we are not going to get the normal security officer that we have had working uh, in an office block and give him a weapon. No, we will have had to have trained perhaps uh, a retired police officer. <laughs> Kenya. 
The Riverside Complex attack in Nairobi joined a growing list of attacks carried out by militants on Kenyan soil. The government hopes that much empowered and trained security guards like this one graduating today could act as a deterrent for such attacks happening again. And that report was by the BBC's Emmanuel Igunza. A quick reminder that if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so by sending us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven, or you can also tweet us at Channel Africa One. Now the time is seventeen forty-four, a little bit early, but let's cross on over to the money desk. Here's Tracy Boomgard with your latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. South Africa's Communications Workers Union President Clive Mervin says the resignation of the CEO of the post office, Mark Barnes, will have a devastating financial impact on the post office and its workers. Barnes tendered his resignation earlier, citing differences over the forward strategy of the structure of the South African post office group, in particular the location of Postbank. The board has appointed Chief Operating Officer Lindiwe Kwele as the interim group CEO until the recruitment process of a new CEO takes place. Mervyn explains. It will have very serious consequences uh, to our members. It will have financial issues on the post office because the post office cannot stand alone without postback. So very soon we'll be releasing a formal statement as an organization and really call upon the board and the minister to really account to us why have they accepted, what are the reasons. Because one of the things workers have said to us is that the post office is becoming stable. If you recall, Mark Barnes came at a time when there was crisis in the post office, a huge strike. Just unfortunate that it also happens, the resignation happens when we are in the midst of another dispute on the seller negotiations whereby we are going to CCMA on the 13th. There are signs of improvement in South Africa's manufacturing sector. The ABSA Purchasing Managers Index measuring the health of the sector moved above the neutral 50 index points at 52.1 index points in July. It's up from 46.2 index points in June. The number above 50 indicates expansion, while a number below 50 indicates contraction. This is the first reading above the neutral 50-point mark since December 2018 during the global financial crisis. Four of the five major subcomponents are above the neutral 50-point mark, signaling an expansion in activity. New sales orders index rose for a second consecutive month. The Bank of England has lowered its growth forecast for the British economy to 1.3% for 2019 and 2020. The bank kept its key interest rate unchanged at 0.75%. The bank says a no-deal Brexit would slow UK growth even further. Prime Minister Boris Johnson took over 10 Downing Street last week, vowing to take Britain out of the European Union on October the 31st with or without a deal. Johnson has just over 90 days to secure and ratify a new divorce deal with the EU or get Britain ready to leave the 28-nation bloc without one. Economists have warned that a no-deal Brexit will severely hamper trade and plunge the UK into recession. General Motors has posted a better-than-expected net profit. High-margin pickup trucks, SUVs and crossovers helped overcome slowing sales in the United States and China. 
Other automakers, including U.S. rival Ford Motor and Germany's Daimler AG, offered disappointing forecasts last week. GM says industry-wide sales in China should remain weak for the rest of the year, but added that its vehicle lineup in that market will be boosted by the addition of new SUVs. Australia has pledged 55 million U.S. dollars to fight human trafficking in Southeast Asia, vowing to tackle modern slavery. The funding is part of a 10-year scheme that includes training for police and judges to probe criminal networks. Rising demand for cheap labor, especially in the fishing and construction industries, has spurred trafficking networks across Southeast Asia. In 2016, according to the Global Slavery Index, there were an estimated 25 million people trapped in modern slavery across Asia-Pacific. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.86 Nigerian Naira, 10.55 Botswana Pula at 103.05 Kenyan Shilling and at 12.86 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.78 Brazilian Hale, 63.45 Russian Ruble, 68.76 Indian Rupee, 6.89 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.21 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 82 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,410 and platinum at $856 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $64.52 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. All right, it's time for us now to cross on over to the sports desk. Here's Neto Chimani. Good evening, sports fans. I'm Tabison Tema with your latest sports update at this hour. We start with cricket news. Zimbabwe national cricket team head coach Lalchand Rajput has applied for the coaching job of India national team. Rajput, who has been at the helm of the Chevron's technical department since last year, is believed to be looking to secure his future. This follows the uncertainty that has now surrounded domestic cricket following the International Cricket Council's decision to suspend Zimbabwe's membership over alleged breaches of its Articles of Association. Rajput confirmed to the Indian media that he has thrown his head into the ring for the big job to lead the world number one test side. The Indians are set to revise their coaching department after Ravi Shastri came under intense pressure following the World Cup semi-final upset by New Zealand recently. According to media reports, Australian Tom Moody, former New Zealand coach Mike Hessen, Sri Lanka's Mahela J. Wadna and ex-India player Robin Singh are all vying for the post. Shastri's contract ended with the World Cup, but his support staff has been given 45 extra days to be part of the West Indies tour that starts this Sunday. On to athletics news. A Swiss court ruling that blocked South African Casta Semenya from defending her world 800-meter title in Doha in September creates much-needed parity and clarity in athletics, the IAAF said on Wednesday. 
a judge at the Swiss Federal Tribunal on Monday revoked a temporary suspension of the IAAF's controversial testosterone cabin rules, meaning the two-time Olympic champion Semenya can no longer compete in events between the 400 meters and a mile as she did in June and July. Semenya had appealed to the Swiss court in May after failing to get the new IAAF regulations overturned by the Court of Arbitration for Sports Cares. Semenya's lawyer Greg Nott regretted the latest developments and the fact that the athlete will now miss out on defending her 800-meter title at the upcoming IAAF World Championship set for Doha in just under nine weeks. So this judgment that was handed down now was one that regarded procedure, um, whether the regulations could be suspended. And frankly, they're not easily or lightly given. So we were very I suppose, fortunate in the very first instance to get that first suspension. Notwithstanding that, of course, uh, concern for the world championships means that it seems unlikely that Custer will run um, in September, October. And as we all know, she worked hard to, to win the championship before, and this would be her in defense of that championship. So one looks at these things and just says... Um, Custer really has had a big battle on her hands. And in terms of support, she's very grateful to the nation and she's very grateful for the support of all of those who, who do support her, and particularly your station, um, for, for, the, for the help that she, and, and, and support that she gets. But as you rightly point out, it's, it's ongoing. In rugby news, the Springboks resumed training on Wednesday morning in Auckland after a short break as they kicked off their preparations for next weekend's showdown in Argentina. The teams will meet in Salta on Saturday 10 August in the third and final round of the Reduced Rugby Championship. Channel Africa's rugby analyst Sitkolele Sochelelo says Rasi Erasmus should not expect a walkover in Salta. And so for South Africa, it's going to be tricky in that. Um, you've got to be able to take control of the game when you play against Argentina because they're a very tricky side. So if you're able to take control of the game and then play your processes and play your strategies and play um, your game plans in certain areas of the field, keep them honest, keep pushing them back and let them make the mistakes and look for that bonus point. I think South Africa are going to part and look for that bonus point and uh, try and secure the rugby championship this weekend. The Springboks are currently leading the rugby championship standings after two matches with one point advantage over defending champions New Zealand. And they can secure the championship trophy with a bonus point victory over Argentina in Salta. In the other match on Saturday, Australia hosts New Zealand in Perth in the final encounter of the rugby championship. That's our spot at this hour. Stay tuned on Channel Africa for news, sports and programming from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest.
All right, that wraps up the first hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. But for now, from myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Leander Maomet, technical producer Catherine Maleka, and the rest of the team, thank you very much for joining us. Info at channelafrica.co.za plus 277-6300-3327 and at channelafrica1 on Twitter for any comments that you may have with regards to the show. Taking us to the top of the hour is Egoli by Mlendo, the vocalist featuring Strava. We'll see you again later. Timbalak, we mean our love. It's Timbalak.